I kind of like just like the slide in open, where it just kind of. Where we're doing start. it right now. We're doing it right now. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I hit record. That's great. How can you demonstrate an idea with paper, pencils, and post-it notes? Coming up. Welcome to Brilliant, a podcast about innovation, strategy, and design. I am Justin Jurek, Vice President of User Experience here at Mignani. And with me, as always, is Justin Dobb, President of Mignani. How are you, Justin? I'm doing well. It's 80 degrees outside. Oh, it was snowing a week and a half ago. Yeah, that's nuts. You know, I, I'd i like to think that's one of those things, those regional things that makes Chicago Chicago. But I, I it's kind of like... I feel most of the northern part of the United States has had this kind of spring. Climate change is real. Climate climate change is real. Um, and it's just nice to be outside when it's nice and warm. Couldn't agree more. What are we talking about today, Justin? We're talking about prototyping. We're talking about prototyping. This is a terrible introduction. This is poor. This is terrible banter. banter we should have usually. prototyped this episode. We should have prototyped this episode. It would have only taken papers. With pencils and post-it notes. I like to think of all the episodes as prototypes at yeah. this point. Well, they kind of are. It's a real trial. But you know what you got to do? You got to just got to like fail repeatedly forward. Isn't that the thing? What's the other one? The Facebook move fast and break stuff. Although they maybe yeah. went a little yeah. too far. <laughs> they, they broke democracy. <laughs> they moved a little too fast yeah. and broke a few too many things. But that's okay. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about prototyping today. Um you know, it's one of these topics that's out there in the universe, and it's pretty widely, ad- I don't know if adopted, but I think people are starting to understand this is a more common practice. But I think it's still relegated, maybe the idea of it, to the development of products or things and have not necessarily seen a wider adoption in the business community at large. I mean, some of the larger corporations are doing it on a regular basis, right? We'll talk a little bit more detail about how they do that, but it's starting to infiltrate more into all of these other uh, business areas. Uh, yeah, so this whole kind of way that design thinking is permeating businesses these days is relative. I want to say it's relatively new. It's not. The extent to which it is is new. But this phrase design thinking, right, started, was it uh, David Kelly? IDL, right? Yeah, yeah. And and Tim Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea that you know the way does twenty years ago maybe, probably longer. Yeah, maybe they, they it really started to see greater adoption maybe about 20, 15 years ago. The way IDEO outlines the the design thinking process is that there's five steps: there's empathy, define, ideate, prototype, and test. Um, Interestingly, uh, I was at a design thinking conference last week and, and working with, um, presenting actually with another professional, Danielle Galmar, formerly of Steelcase, who did a lot of business prototyping. And so we really talked about the differences in the, of different types of fidelity in prototyping and really uh, showing people that it doesn't take a huge investment to really start doing this kind of design yeah. thinking and prototyping. Um, it doesn't mean, you know, she built entire businesses for Steelcase that were prototype businesses. Yeah. Um, but even while they were running that business, they were prototyping individual parts of that business and just watching people do things, moving furniture around. It yeah. was, it was, a, it was a, a product called WorkSpring, and they ran it in Chicago, actually, and we've used it a number of times in our business. And it was a place for external meeting space, right, creative space, any kind of planning or strategy meetings or larger things you want to get off yeah. site. I mean, and really- similar to kind of like a WeWork kind of, but not in terms of, it was almost like, it was almost like borrow a conference space, yeah, conference we, room, you know? Yeah, WeWork is like, 
start a business and yeah, yeah. work out of here where there they were more like have a meeting um i think one of their big claims to fame was uh lady gaga planned her entire global tour out of work spring they met they brought all their tech people in they brought all the creative people in you know their um, casting agents and yeah and lady gaga herself and they all figured what's this tour going to be you know how grandiose is it going to be what's the narrative of the actual performance who do we need where do we go when when do we go there like the logistics all of that was spread out all over these rooms at work spring but the point what is the point maybe we can back up a little bit and yeah. talk about what 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 is a prototype right and and i think a lot of times we think of a prototype as like again like a product or a thing that is like the beta version of that thing before it exists in the world but prototyping in its most abstract sense can be any tangible form that um, that an idea can take to to really test the validity of an idea or a thought or a product or a business yeah and I, I think it's easy to kind of think of it just is, is sitting over here to the side when it really is about making things. But I think it is also kind of an expression of idea. I think one of the best ways I kind of think about prototyping is the the idea of storyboarding, right? Uh, that's, you know, it's got its own name. Yeah. But effectively, a storyboard is a prototype for a movie or a video, you right. know, where where the a team of illustrators takes a look at the script and sketches out the possible ways that the movie could play out visually before they get in a room and really start planning out how they're going to make all these things. You know, you, it's easier to see it than it is to just talk about it repeatedly. Yeah, and I think, you know, even that, you know, people think of prototypes as being visual when actually, you know, it may be ultimately a visual thing, but you could be really prototyping the connections between ideas. Yeah. I know we've used, you know, post-it notes to talk about taxonomy, right? You put different products and mm -hmm. I want to know how do I really want to group those products, say in a website yeah. or, or even in a store location or something like that. And you just take these um, post-it notes with the different categories on it. I'll say, let's just take uh, home furniture, right? You've got seating, You've got storage, mm -hmm. you've got shelving lighting. or lighting, yeah. or is it living room, dining room, bedroom, right? Yeah. It seems like really basic stuff, but you can, you know, maybe you do both, but really, you know, how do you arrange all the things under those categories um, that in a way that is kind of differential to the way people want to shop? You know, I think one of the other interesting things about prototyping as well is that there's a wide scale of fidelities, right? So you know, what you're talking about there is, is really low fidelity, right? And when we say low fidelity, we mean, you know, it doesn't look fancy. You know, it's it scribbles on a post-it note, it scribbles on a whiteboard, and that is as valid as a fully baked PowerPoint presentation because, in fact, oh, I could argue that it's better early to go as fast as you can to generate as many variants of an idea. Um, and in order to do that, you want to stay kind of in the lower fidelity. And then you move up a scale as you move through the process. Yeah, and it's interesting. There are pads of paper with an outline of a mobile screen on it. Yeah. And, you know, they're yeah. just sketching and throwing, you know, tearing off, sketching the next screen, tearing off, sketching the next screen. Yeah. And then, like, you know, pretending to click through so they can explain to someone how this how this works. And yeah. it doesn't cost anything. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the interesting part, too, is um, there's kind of a micro and macro level of it, too, where... 
you know, there's some prototyping you do where you're looking at a whole, right? You're looking at what's the structure of this whole thing. So let's go back to the house, right? Yeah. You can early on, maybe an architect, when they're thinking about how a home will be built, right? They're sketching out forms and shapes and they're blocking out the areas of the home. And then as they start to get to something that maybe feels aesthetically like they're thinking, well, now they start to put a higher degree of, okay, now it's got to have a garage. It's got to have a front door. It's got to have a bedroom. It's got to have four bedrooms. It's got to have a kitchen. And they really start to block in these areas. And as they move through the process, they add increasing levels of detail. Um, and sometimes they may work on the whole. And sometimes they may work on just a part. They'll look at just the fireplace and draw, you know, 25 different versions of a fireplace. Or, you know, to take it out of the visual, right? You may be able to, you know, prototyping some ways as, as well as um, the process of like uh, scripting or, you know, writing the, the spoken word or the written word is just as, as iterative um, where it goes through rounds of edits where you put everything out. I think the biggest impression that I could, if, if the, there's an impression to take away from this is get it out of your head and into the world because the minute you have to, the minute you can see something, you can start to make it better. But it, it, when those ideas stay kind of precious in this little form, you know, um, uh, my daughter, we just got her a book, and I, I was walking down the, the street on Michigan Avenue here, and I looked to my right, and there was um, the storefront for the Chicago Architectural Society, mm -hmm. and they had a book in the front, a children's book called "What Do You Do with an Idea," and I was like. That, just the cover and the title, I was like, that looks great. So I went in and looked at it, and it was this great little story about how you protect these little ideas, but if you don't actually let it, anyone else see it, it can't grow. Yeah. The only way for an idea to really grow is to be tested by other people. You still have to protect it and help it along, but that act of putting something into the world is the only way to make it better. If it stays too precious then it stays too precious. And usually, you know, you, you'll you get input from other people that have different points of view from you, and that's what makes something better as it moves along. Yeah, and it kind of brings up the point that um, a lot of people are afraid to show, like, varying stages of prototyping yeah. to other people, like, they won't understand because it's too crude. Um, you know, and that's why there are different levels of prototyping, right? We talked about low fidelity, medium fidelity, and high fidelity. Um, but... You know, even at any of those stages, the one thing that, that I think I've seen in, in our business is that if you level set with people about what you want them to react to and what you are trying to convey before you show them the thing, mm -hmm. people are pretty good. Like, you know, when you, especially when you say you, you have expertise that we want to tap into and it's in regard to like, you know how things should be arranged together. That's all we're going to talk about today is mm -hmm. how these things get arranged into a certain taxonomy or if it's say it's one little micro interaction on a website and there's not a whole experience you don't want to like loose the hounds on like hey what do you think of this this website and right it doesn't work mm -hmm. and there's only like three things they can click and you know but if you tell them hey we're going to show you a very limited thing people yep. are actually pretty good about focusing and you know not giving you feedback that is unwarranted or you don't want or don't need. I think it might be helpful, too, to talk about, you know, we talked about this a little bit, maybe a couple podcasts ago, about using the idea of story 
yeah. to help sketch out a business case. And I think that's another great example of prototyping, right? Where you're taking something that's an abstract series of interconnected thoughts, but because there's no kind of narrative fabric between all of these potential connections, it's hard to understand the value. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the value we've seen in starting to put story around some of these rough business ideas. Yeah, for sure. So um, I actually wrote an article on Forbes.com about why you should start every UX design project with a story. And the idea is really that um, you can convey a lot of information that's not going to bias a designer into what the solution should be before they start working on it, right? Why you have a designer involved is that they can bring an alternative view, they can bring, you know, synthesize new things to solve a problem. So we like to really sit and say, what is the story? What's bringing this person to the problem or the need? What emotionally is going on with them? And then how are they emotionally satisfied by the solution? And what are they looking for? What are they finding? What are they getting out of this experience without like saying a drop down comes down? And, you know, it's like four words. It's more like they're looking for X. They go and the, the first thing they see that delights them is a solution for a problem or an opportunity or, you know, and some of that gets satisfied with UX writing. Some of that gets mm -hmm. satisfied with the actual flow of the journey. Some of it gets satisfied with the way the design works, uh, literally. Um, but having that story, we like to call it the emotional requirements, right? Every project has technical requirements. Every project has functional requirements. Every project has business requirements, but really folding in and maybe leading with the emotional requirements of the user really helps to frame all those solutions in a way that is it really delightful? I mean, is what you're doing really delighting someone? And I think that's what gets us to back to the idea that the things we are making, the ideas we have, have to work for people in the world. And prototyping is the quickest way to get you from an abstract idea to seeing how real people react to that idea, whether it's a visual idea, whether it's a web design, whether it's a movie, whether it's whatever that thing is. Once people can react to it and you're solving some emotional component of it, yep. now, it's, now there's some resonance. And until you put it in front of people, it's all in your head. Yeah, and I know when like we did a project for the American Academy of Pediatrics years ago um, that was developing a, a portal for their members to really, one, add some more value around the content that they create. They're one of the most respected content creators, uh, but people were kind of going around uh, AAP to get to that content. And so in the development of this portal, we really spent a lot of time doing really low fidelity paper prototypes, actually, because people, you know, the behavior we we're trying to replace was tearing articles out of printed magazines, putting them into file folders, and like managing their clippings that way, and having access to the things they want. And the way that they were kind of categorizing all of their data, we, were, we, you know, we wanted to learn as much from them. So we really went and worked with a lot of uh, younger members and older members about like, why are you tearing what out? How does it work? And then starting to create interfaces that were analogs, well, that's funny, uh, hmm. digital analogs to yeah. that behavior. And so starting with those low fidelity prototypes, we were able to really get ideas in front of people really quickly and work through like, yeah, I want that. No, I don't want that. And well before we started coding anything. Yeah. I think one of the other interesting things about the process of prototyping is it forces you to take 
the abstract and make it tangible. It often starts to tell a story about how this thing will be used that maybe wasn't revealed to you while you were you know, doodling in your notepad or having a bunch of conversations. Often it, there's a revelation that happens and they happen repeatedly as the project moves forward and as the levels of fidelity increase, but particularly in those early low and medium fidelity sections there, you'll be sitting in a meeting with someone and they'll be like, hey, why haven't you included this? And you're like, oh, that yeah, yeah, that's a great thing to add. And it might not have been anything we're able to see you know, in the abstract until it's on paper in front of you or on a screen, um, you can't see what's missing. The prototyping process is also a really good way to find what features or what components of anything can you take away and still get the whole. And that's as important, that focus, um, providing focus on an experience is really important and having a person be able to successfully complete that experience from beginning to end. Yeah, and so that's, I mean, that is one of the advantages, especially low fidelity, is codifying that experience and all of those ideas into one spot. Yeah. Um, uh, that doesn't mean there aren't downsides too, right? So there are downsides to low fidelity prototyping that are, you know, one, it's unrealistic, right? You can, sure. You can either, you know, oversell or undersell an idea with, mm -hmm. a, you know, um, and part of the reason for that is that you really don't have a true consensus reality, right, with a low fidelity prototype. We're all putting our imagination into the mix. And what someone else is imagining this low fidelity prototype is going to manifest as, uh, they're not telling or they can't even, you know, show you mm -hmm. until... The, until one's made. So that there, there are, you know, you are making some assumptions based on re people's reactions. Yeah. Uh, that what they're reacting to is the same kind of internal vision you have from this low Correct. fidelity. I'm not saying that it's, you know, that's not certainly a barrier or too high a cost. Right. Or risk, but it's, uh, it's something to think about. It's yeah. You got to keep that aware in the back of your head as you're moving through those low fi sections. I mean, you don't want to end up with a false positive either, right? That there's, there's a lot of implied magic in a paper prototype mm -hmm. that we're just like, and the magic happens. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and so you, you, don't want, you don't want to invent too much magic or sell too much magic without the you know, constraints of feasibility behind it. So when do we go into medium fidelity? What, are you, what do you consider a medium fidelity prototype? A medium fidelity, you know, generally speaking, is something where there's actually now some skin in the game. Like, there's real content, there are real words, there may be real images. There are, there are components that we're going to use to some extent in the final version that have started to been added in, added in. And I think we're starting to pay attention to the quantity and the volume of components or objects. And I, I, you know, our experience is more kind of in the digital space, but mm -hmm. I think generally speaking in, in a medium fidelity prototype, what you're looking for is something that is as near a facsimile to the final product without going through the the efforts to really like what is it what are the aesthetic qualities of it right so it's still more blocked than it is um styled so there are you know we're still kind of uh zoning out content areas but in terms of the kinds of content like i'll take an example of like a navigation Right. Mm -hmm. In a low fidelity prototype, you might have nav goes here and you have drawn lines, scribbles that represent what the different words would be. Right. In a medium fidelity prototype, you would have 
a representation of what that navigation would be, maybe using like Helvetica or uh, Arial, some basic font. Mm-hmm. But you have all the actual navigation um, categories in that bar. And in, are there drop downs? If there are, let's accommodate for what's in those drop downs. We haven't yet put paint on it. We haven't decided it, decided what uh, what it's going to feel like visually. Yeah. But at least structurally and from a content perspective, we kind of know what's going to go in there. Yeah, I guess you know, for low fidelity prototype is kind of you're testing conceptually what something is. Uh, when you get into the medium fidelity, I kind of think about it as you, you're really starting to test how it's going to work. Right. Right. So, and you know, you mentioned something about limited um, interactions too. And I, I think, you know, the way we use it here most of the time is, you know, we start testing single interactions or, or kind of experiences on rails, right? It might right. look like a whole site, but we've got a test plan and some user journeys that we want to make sure that individual sections of these things uh, are as intuitive as we think they are right. or that, you know, people like can walk through it and and they're going to see the results they think they're going to get. And it's all, you know, it's all on Rails. There's no back end. Right. Um, but at least we know that they, they're not getting confused. They're seeing things for the right scale or prominence, even if it's not a final design. Yeah, and I, I also think, you know, you brought up back end, and I think that that's an important part. The prototype is as valuable for the people who will eventually be engineering the component technology that's required to feed this information as it is for the users, right? So again, it's just as difficult for a web development team, you know, when you sit down with a low fidelity prototype and you're like, okay, here's roughly what it's going to do. They're like, great. But like, what's it really going to do? The medium fidelity prototype should really start to be able to spell out what kind of information we're going to need, where, when, and we should be able to talk about how we're going to get it. And that starts to let the dev team understand how to construct the application on the back end yep. to make this thing work on the front. Yep. So it's a seamless experience. The, the kind of the disadvantage is usually you have, well, anybody can pull up Post-it notes or pencil and paper. You know, generally you need to start getting some tools. And right. those tools can actually be, you know, tools you already have like PowerPoint. Yeah, PowerPoint um, is valid. Um, I've seen a lot of really good PowerPoint keynote. prototypes. Yep. Um, you may have to learn some new skills within that program. You know, most people just do slides, right? <laughs> They're just mm-hmm. going slide A, slide B, slide C. Um, whereas this is like, if you click this, it goes to slide D. If you check this box, it goes back to, you know, yep. slide A. Um and so it's a little more advanced uh, craftsmanship mm-hmm. within those tools. But there are also um, some other digital tools. What, like, what, what are the, some of the tools that we use here? I mean, like, when we're starting to get into medium fidelity, we're moving into Sketch. Sketch is a pretty well-adopted um, industry standard for uh, web design in terms of building out a front end. Um, the reason we start in Sketch and stay in Sketch from the medium up to the final deliverable of like the front end assets is because you can progressively add more detail within the same file. So it's easy enough to kind of clone the file where you ended up for like the low fidelity and move it into medium fidelity and clone a file and start adding 
color and fonts and all of that stuff yep. in a really efficient fashion. So we use that and we usually couple it uh, once we're actually moving into interactive prototypes with Envision. Um, again, that's a pretty um, widely adopted uh, platform. It's a web-based platform where we're able to push up our files from Sketch right into Envision and really quickly add interactivity between basic interactivity, right? Um, it's almost like you know, you can click on a zone and get to another view, and there's some different kinds of transitions for different elements within those. So it starts to really start to tell the story of how this thing might work in, in real world. Yeah, and so that gets to the point, like, these tools really help uh, when you want to iterate, right? You want to, yep. you know, test. You want to get these prototypes in front of people. It's not enough just to build them, look at them, and go, like, oh, I'm so smart. <laughs> right. <laughs> you want to put them in front of people who can prove to you you're not as smart as you think you are. Correct. And um, be able to iterate and, you know, uh, evolve these ideas. And so these tools are really helpful, yeah. um, even more so than paper, right? Because paper, I've got to redo everything. Yeah, and, well, and the other thing is that the, the speed from the designer's desktop to the deployable, shareable link is really fast. Uh, just for example, the other day I was... Um, working on a prototype for a mobile app, and I was sitting in a, a room with the the uh, client strategy team, and they were talking about this edit and that edit. And in real time, I was making the edit, hitting update, and it was sh it was shooting up to the Envision link, you know, just that quickly. So we were just checking off boxes in the meeting because they weren't huge changes. Right. They were minor text edits and those kinds of things that you can really be quick. So we were able to kind of couple a meeting that was basically a feedback meeting into a feedback and finish the thing meeting, yeah. which was great because then we were all done with that for the day. So that kind of takes us. So once we've done our medium fidelity prototyping, right, getting into high fidelity prototyping. And of course, that allows for more accuracy and evaluation, right, while you're kind of um, maximizing the real world predictive value of what you have. Right? Yeah. So your medium was how does it work? And the, the kind of high fidelity is how desirable is this thing for real, right? What is the adoption going to look like in the market or yeah. with users or satisfaction, right? So what are they really going to feel about this final thing? Yeah, and there are a variety of prototypes on, on the digital end of things that some are just front end, right? They, they have no real like data hooks on the backside. But some are, are truly applications. That, that's where you would call something maybe a beta product, right? Mm -hmm. Something that's ready to go, but we're going to test it in a real-world environment and kick the tires and see what breaks uh, and then edit from there and go forward. The biggest thing, I think, when you're in that final phase is a lot of it should be, at that point, confirmation about things you are expecting users to give you feedback about. Right. If you are coming up with huge surprises in the high fidelity or beta versions, one, that's great data because it was something that maybe you didn't think of at all. But if that was the case, you should probably go back and examine what your blind spots were in the medium fidelity phase yep. because the cost of switching or changing things and once you're in that higher fidelity section are much greater, right? So I think that there's a continuum of kind of the price per hour, right, to execute yeah. on each of these things goes up as you move up that chain. And most likely the size of the team. Right. right? So um, where most kind of UX designers can can work through Sketch and, 
and the like getting into you know full html css javascript right or um, you're building an angular app or yeah. any of the any of these things you know on a frame on some other framework yeah. yeah it's it's a little more complicated and there are more people involved and yeah um, you know in 1994 i believe jurassic park came out and at the time the computer effects were still kind of nascent and having fully cgi characters in movies was not yet something that the studios wanted to put money on. Yep. And so they had built out all these animatronic dinosaurs, which were used in the movie. However, halfway through production, Spielberg is sitting in a meeting with his production team, and the guys from ILM show up, and they're like, hey, we have something to show you. And it was a high-fidelity prototype of a Tyrannosaurus Rex loping across a screen. Yeah. And the minute they all saw it, they were like, that's how we're doing the rest of yeah. this movie. Yeah. And I think that's a great illustration for the power of a prototype in, in changing how you're approaching what you're working on. I mean, they were midway through production. They already had giant, story, tall, yeah. animatronic dinosaurs. And he's like, the only way this is going to really work is if we have... And they didn't really know that they were going to get that right. until halfway through production. So I, it kind of shows the value of the, the power of a prototype. Yeah, well, just kind of a, that story ex kind of highlights two things. One is that a high-fidelity prototype can speed consensus approval, right? Yeah. So, like, we've taken the imagination out of it, and it's just like y either you want that or you don't, yeah. and you can articulate why you do or don't. The other thing that a high-fidelity prototype can do if you're a product manager or chief experience officer is you go to your boss and it's about mitigating your own risk mm -hmm. right in a project and say mm -hmm. okay this is what i'm ready to launch you sign off on this now right that right we're, it's not that i'm taking this idea launching it and we're all going to see how it works it's you know i have something to show you now that is you know prior to the investment mm -hmm. that you can say if the investment looks like this you're on board some of these projects that, that we've worked on are multi-million dollar experiences that, you know, will change business. And, right. you know, you don't want to be hanging in the wind and you don't want, you know, you want people to want it to work, right? The worst thing is that, what is it? <laughs> failure's an orphan, right? Uh, <laughs> success has many parents and yeah, failure's yeah. an orphan. You don't want to be the, the last man slash woman standing. Yeah. If things go wrong. Going south, as they yeah, say in yeah, Chicago. Yeah, that's that's bad news. Well, that was a good talk about prototypes. I think we covered you know a lot of ground um, from you know what is a prototype to how you can use it to the varying levels of fidelity. And hopefully, the next time you're thinking of starting a project or you have an idea about how something could be executed, just get it out on paper and show it around. And I think you'll see you know a huge amount of return on that that small amount of effort in the upfront. All right. Well, thank you, Justin. Well, thank you, Justin. I'm going to go enjoy this 80-degree day, but not really because I have the rest of the day to, right. to work. Right. Get, get back to work. Thanks for listening to Brilliant. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe or rate us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Brilliant is recorded at Mignani, an experienced design and strategy firm in Chicago, Illinois. To learn more about what Mignani can do for you, visit Mignani.com. That's M-A-G-N-A-N-I.com.